I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And joining me today in the Money Cafe in Short Straw in Hawthorne is Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, councillor of Manningham Council. Um, are you on the RSL as well? I'm what a member of the Hawthorne RSL, that's about it. So, uh, but you're not a returned soldier, are no, you? No, my dad was, though, so I'm an affiliate member, I think they call it. Right. That's all part of getting the RSL out of pokies, though. So it's a yes, that's right. And, uh, of course, Stephen is the scourge of, um, the scourge of uh, uh, company chairman at the AGMs. And uh, let's start, Stephen, with uh, what's going on, because we're in the middle of the AGM season, uh, the annual general meeting season. How's it been going? Oh, well, I'm absolutely loving it because um, the online AGM is a revelation because you can get to so many more. I mean, I've, I've had days where I've, I've done five meetings in one day asking more than 100 written questions online. I mean, back in the days when you got to pay for your flights and stuff, you know, you get to two if you're lucky. So I'm saving heaps on travel and I'm getting to more meetings and I'm, I've thrown, I reckon I've thrown 300 questions at 20 meetings in the last uh, Well, how many of them weeks. get read out? Well, they read out. I mean, the cowboys like you know, Murdoch and... Rio Tinto, and they will censor you and not read them out. But the vast majority read the lot. And it's so much more credible having the company representative reading out your, your you know, deliberately provocative questions than doing it yourself. Oh, I, think so you, I, I, I think you ask a decent question, Stephen. You know, I, I mean, I can't. Anyway, um, I hear what you say. Yeah, so I'm That's a fine. fan. I, I think we must lock in the hybrid at least. But I don't mind fully online AGMs, but all these companies that have been trying to change their constitution to allow online AGMs have been getting voted down because the proxy advisors want to see the whites of the eyes of the chairs and the directors. So they still want the physical meeting even though they never go themselves. So, um, yeah, but it's good. And coming up, there's... uh, What highlights have you had? Oh, look, I think my was pretty good fun where you had, uh, you know, the board 37% against and, you know, solely attacking them. And so I enjoyed that one. Domino's Pizza, Jack Cowan, worth, you know, three billion bucks worth of stock. You know, put 15 questions at Jack. You know, he's 79, reckons he's going to go to his 90. So um, they've been a good story. Transurban was fun. Crown Resorts is always great value. So I got 20 questions in there. Um, Endeavour Group, the new Woolies Pokies spin-off, you know, they were, was there sort of, I always do the welcome to the ASX sort of for the new companies. Cobram Estates, great company, third world's third biggest olive grower. Well, you know, I, I was the only one asking questions along with the ASA and great company, worth 800 million. But, you know, you'd put them through their but paces. Were you, were you attacking them in their questions? No, look, you attacked them, you know, because one of the directors was still consulting to the company. So there's often these companies that float, they haven't quite got all their governance right. So you just put them through the usual rigours of, you know, what's the escrow like on your founding shares? Are you independent? Who's got the power? Yeah, have you made the transition? Uh, but you're still a great company and we love you. But you just sort of work them over. And, you know, rather than having a boring meeting where they think, well, this nothing much happens here, you just give them a workout and say, welcome to the public, public company land. <laughs> well, here we are. It's lunch to midday lunchtime. Have you been there any today? Well, you, I mean, I think Coles and vicinity centres are going to be sending you free vouchers, Alan, because I was meant to be doing them this morning at 10 and 10.30, but I thought I'd better put a couple of hours into getting ready for this, so uh, they got a free pass, courtesy of Alan Kohler. So, uh, look, um, and I missed Seven West Media yesterday as well, which was a bit annoying, but uh, tomorrow we've got REA Group tomorrow morning, 
Uh, both the Murdoch ones, Fox and News Corp, are coming up in the next week. Nine Entertainment next week. So you're going to go after Murdoch again? Yeah, yeah, but he he limits you to two questions. I mean, the the, the Murdoch dancing bears—they always campaign for free speech. If you watch Sky News, but then when it comes to free speech at Rupert's AGMs, you get two questions in two minutes, even if you've flown halfway around the world and online. It doesn't matter what the the format is. Uh, there's no free speech at a Murdoch AGM. Yeah. You wrote about it at Macquarie the other day in, Macquarie, in Eureka. Do you, do you, and you talked a bit about their market cap up at $76 billion. Do you think they're going to become Australia's fourth biggest bank? Well, as of this morning, Wednesday morning, their market cap is just over 75 and the ANZ's dropped to about 78 So they're within $3 billion right. of becoming our fourth biggest bank. So the big four and the big five is changing. And I just think it's a, it's a, it's just a wonderful Australian success story. Although interestingly, it's actually a Sydney success story because they've got five thousand staff in Sydney and only six hundred here in Melbourne, and the entire board is Sydney. So it's a bunch of Sydney bankers who've become the world's biggest owners of infrastructure. Um, I gave them their nickname, the Millionaire Factory, back in 1997. They've never given me a dollar in consulting fees for the fact that every young, smart graduate wants to become a millionaire, so they all apply to work at Macquarie. Um, you should definitely have been paid for oh, that. I think so. I keep running for their board saying, I gave you your name. Give us, give us a board seat, but this doesn't <laughs> seem to work. So, uh, yeah, so and they're the, big... the world's biggest owner of infrastructure, are they? Yeah, yeah. Basically, they sort of learnt how to rip off governments with infrastructure, particularly with the, the toll roads in Sydney and Sydney Airport. They were their first two big deals, and then they exported that model around the world, and they're salivating with Biden's trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. I mean, they're going to be packaging up, you know, roads, ports, airports. They're just, they moved early on the Australian model of states run the infrastructure but have no money, so let's turn to a bunch of clever bankers to package them up. And uh, they've parlayed that into the world's biggest um, infrastructure managers. And my personal favourite is that they went into the heart of the Roman Empire, bought Rome Airport, ripped off the Italians for five years and sold it back to them for about a $500 million profit. I mean, who can do that? Bunch of bankers in Sydney. I mean, what a great performance. So uh, I love them and I'll be supporting their um, I'm going to call that a backhand compliment, plan. Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be a customer, you just want to be a shareholder, like any big bank. Yes, that's right. Well, it'll be interesting. I mean, it already is a big five. It's not. It's no. Mind you, they're not a, the same sort of organisation, are they? As the, no, as well, the big four banks. Yeah, they started off as an investment bank. They're more. A, they're more a fund manager. They're far more global. I mean, majority of their earnings and staff are offshore. Our big banks are based at this giant local building societies, riding the uh, the mortgage market. Would you here. invest in them now? No, I think. Well, I think many stocks are overpriced now. I mean, they're at two hundred bucks. When this thing, when it floated in '96, was at six bucks. So it's been an incredible performer and it's now worth $75 billion. I mean, to compare it, I think West Farmers is around 63 I think uh, Woolies and Fortescue around 44 45 So they are now the, the, the sixth biggest company in Australia. Um, and their IP is their people. Yeah. And they, they haven't changed the pay model since the early 70s. Hire the brightest, give them a massive profit share, lock it up for seven years so they can never afford to leave and have a really good risk management profile and be entrepreneurial and, and evolve your business model into any mm. opportunity you see. And Australia should be proud of them. Speaking of infrastructure, we've seen Sydney Airport has uh, decided to accept that takeover offer. 2020, I think it's $23.6 billion mm. um, from uh, the consortium led by uh, IFM. Uh, interesting. I mean, uh, it's it's part of a bunch of takeovers that's going on at the moment. There's tons of them. Um, 
what do you think of the Sydney Airport thing? Look, I think it is ridiculous that the enterprise value is $30 billion for one airport. I mean, it just shows you the monopoly rent. On It's an airport built on reclaimed land in Sydney Harbour, and it's worth it's a piece of land worth $30 billion. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Macquarie bought it initially, made a fortune, spun it off, and now it's gone back into um, industry fund land. Um, and, you know, I think they're overpaying, but um, everything looks overpriced at the moment. So, And I've never seen a, a takeover frenzy quite, quite like it at the moment. I mean, after pay, that, that vote's coming up yep. in December, you know, $34 billion all-script deal. Newcrest just this week spending $2.8 billion US on a Canadian acquisition. Santos and Oil Search getting together. Transurban buying, you know, um, the West Connect for $11 billion. And even the Catholic Church are getting into the action, Alan, with uh, Calvary's $588 million agreed takeover of Japara in the residential care, aged care business. So this zero interest rate and, thing. And Peter Warren's buying Penfolds Motors. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> $100 million, if yeah. you don't mind. Yeah. And, so it's a and, bit of a payday for the family there. And Stanmore Resources shelled out this week $1.2 billion US for a couple of uh, BHP uh, coal Co- mines. Coal mines. Twice, so. tw- twice the market cap of Stanmore. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's and right. So and the stock went up 14% on day one and then down 14% next day, I think. I know. I know. It was sort of. Who will buy our belching coal? This is a, basically it's an Indonesian-controlled outfit. So you know, even private equity is, is starting to be reluctant to, to step up and, and buy. Well, at least um, it's but at least it's coking coal, not yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit thermal legible, coal. So it's not it's not thermal, but uh, um, you know, it's uh, it, it is interesting. I mean, BHP uh, backdooring twenty-two billion dollars worth of uh, Woodside stock to their shareholders and them getting out of oil as well. So um, BHP are really changing their portfolio at the moment. This has been quite dramatic the last three or four months with coal and oil exits. Yeah, they're just getting out of it. Mm. Absolutely. And their and CBA and BHP at the moment both sort of neck and neck for the top market cap at $185 billion. So um, still the big Australian, but a very different looking Australian and majority of the value is in iron ore like with um, Rio. Yeah. It's just a, it's almost a, a one state, one commodity story almost with with BHP's profits. Speaking of CBA, we, I spoke, to, I talked to CBA, uh, James Thompson on the Money Cafe last week about CBA's cryptocurrency mm. foray, um, uh, allowing people to buy and sell crypto in their app. What do you think of that? Look, I, I must admit, I'm I'm a conservative when it comes to cryptocurrency, but I, I even noticed that Square, the outfit which is buying Afterpay, you know, they've got a big holding of Bitcoin, so all the Afterpay shareholders sure. are going to suddenly find themselves In with fact, the, it's the, by far their largest asset. Yeah, yeah. So, look, anyone who's been in it is making a fortune. So, when you're at the casino and you're making money, you can't. And I guess, should governments have a monopoly over currency, store of value? Probably not. So, there's something in it, but it's just a bubble, you know. I'm, I'm nervous. But, you know, we've all been wrong on that because it keeps all going up. So, now, you've been... Um keeping a score of JobKeeper disclosures by ASX companies, haven't you? Well, I think... So, uh, where are we up to? We got, I think we got one yesterday, didn't we? Well, what's interesting is, I just sort of noticed a, few, a couple of weeks ago that all these companies are, are making this announcement to the ASX, spelling out their JobKeeper using the one government form. And I've never seen this before, where... The form talks about, you know, Section 323DB1 of the Corporations Act, we reveal, and they're revealing how many of their staff got JobKeeper in the first year and the second year and whether they've paid any back. 
So what's happened here is that Paul and Hansen's done a deal with the government to force every single public company to make a standard JobKeeper disclosure. And so 2,000 companies are all doing this in the next set of six weeks. And what's hilarious is that the biggest recipients have all yet to do it. So we're all sitting there waiting for Premier Investments and Solly Lou to come out and, and do their, yes, we got 100 million at eight o'clock on a Friday night. Um, so a lot of companies are doing it after their AGMs. So both Domain and Domino's and Credit Corp all in the last two weeks did their JobKeeper disclosure after the AGM. And it's a real mixed bag. Some people are keeping the lot and you can argue they've been a bit greedy and they shouldn't have. Others are giving it all back, like um, Credit Corp, Santos, REA Group have taken it and then given it all back, as did Santos. Others are giving a bit back, Cube, Domain, Helios, and then others have done, you know, my thing, the noble noble position of taking nothing. AGL, ANZ, Centre Group, just, you know, we never claimed it in the first place. And every single company is going to be disclosing this between now and Christmas because you've got 60 days. Including private companies. No, no, this is the thing. Just ASX companies. It's, it's crazy. I mean, JobKeeper's an $88 billion scheme. $38 billion went to companies and employers that didn't qualify, i.e. their revenues didn't fall by the required 15 for not-for-profits, 30% for companies with less than a billion in revenue, or 50% for companies with more than a billion in revenue. So $38 billion's been smoked from companies that didn't deserve it. And... We're only getting visibility on the 3% that went to public companies. So in private equity land and not-for-profit land, you know, private schools got a billion. There's very poor disclosure, yet there's excessive disclosure in public company land. I mean, they've already revealed most of this stuff in their annual reports, and now they're doing this discrete government form. Yes, this is our JobKeeper position. Never seen it before. They've never had to disclose their GST revenues or their... But, you know, you're a listed company... You've got to fill out this form for the government. But that's crazy that they're leaving out the private companies. It's only ASX companies. I mean, the Kiwis and the US and the, and the UK all had a public register of every recipient. So why Corman and Morrison didn't, and Josh didn't go for that? They went for the secrecy model because they wanted to not discourage participation. I just find that a disgrace. And trans- sunlight's the best disinfectant, and it's dripping out anyway. Whereas a government register would have meant there wouldn't have been an issue because everyone would have seen who was getting it, and all the rogues who shouldn't have got it wouldn't have claimed it because they wouldn't want to get named on the public register, like what happened in New Zealand. Yeah. So keep watching for the big clumps. Qantas will be north of 500 million. You know, you're going to see Crown and Star, Star Entertainment, the casino companies will be north of 100 million, and not many are giving any back of those guys, even though, in my view, they should. Yeah. Um, hey, did you see that Rosalind Kogan has bought his parents a house, 20 million bucks in Turak? I just think it's good to see it going back the other way because these days most parents <laughs> are buying their children houses. And uh, it's just good to see a boy, you know, yeah. looking after his parents. Well, particularly... I, I just know. think more, uh, more kids should take note of this. I, I agree. I mean, Belarusian migrants grew up in Housing Commission. Yeah. You know, and so the parents have gone from Housing Commission to a smart kid who's made it, now living in Turak. I, yeah. I love it. It's fantastic. It. And the second house for the family in Turak. So they're both living in Turak. Yeah. And they're each in a $20 million house. I mean, you can argue about Ruslan with his, you know, his endless share sales. He's done seven share sales, raising a couple of hundred million over the last... Well, he had to buy houses, years. you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you need 20 million for your, for your elderly parents in Turek? Look, maybe not that much, but 
I agree. It's, it is healthy to see it go on the other way. They're going to rattle around this thing. It's pretty I large. Know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hide help. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. That's right. And speaking of rich people, Elon Musk did a, um, a Twitter poll. Now, um, there's more to this than meets the eye, is there not? Mm. Yeah. So the US have a, a really good tax system with options whereby um, – you have to either pay the tax on the day you exercise them or the day they expire. Now, these 10-year Twitter options that Elon had were about to expire. So he was not going to be able to avoid a $10 billion plus tax bill, even if he took up the options and held them. So I think it was inevitable he was going to sell anyway because, you know, in California, the, company, the capital gains tax rate's about 54%. So he was going to have to write a very big check. And you can't take out a big margin loan on your Twitter shares, even if they're worth $200 billion. Is there a bank? No bank's going to lend you 10 or $20 billion. So he, did a, he had to sell. And he, he, he faked it, in a sense, by doing a Twitter poll, should I sell? And 3.5 million replied or participated in the poll. And 58% yes said, said yes, you, you should sell. So Tuesday night our time, Twitter stocks, uh, Tesla stocks down twelve um, percent. So he smoked, you know, ten billion on his well, personal stake. I know, but it's it's worth reflecting on the actual wording of the poll because he didn't ask Twitter followers whether he should sell. He said, "I am going to sell ten percent of my stake. Do you agree or not?" Yes, but then so, he said. Oh, he said, then he's the follow-up saying, I, I, will, I will follow your advice. So he, he certainly made it out like, right, okay. like you know, majority rule here, and he got the majority. And uh, well, What would have happened if, the, if he didn't? Well, I think he would have had to find another way and done a second poll probably, you know, I think <laughs> in, right. in two months' time and had more discussion about it, and then everyone would have said, well, poor, poor, poor Elon's got to find well, it. Well, it still 10, didn't, it didn't, tell the, didn't stop the Tesla share price going down. No, well, I mean, any founder dumping uh, $15 billion, I mean, how often does that happen? A founder sells 15, uh, 10 to $15 billion worth of stock. I mean, it's a trillion-dollar stock. He's got 17%. So it's only 1.7% of the company that he's selling. But in cash terms, you know, you've got to write a check for $15 billion to take out this stake. And it's massively overpriced, like everything else in the tech sector. So... Um, no wonder it's a demand and supply thing. There's going to be a huge amount of supply coming out of Elon. You just slipped in that big big statement. It's massively overpriced. I interviewed Heath Benke of Hold On Capital recently, and he says it's currently it should it's currently worth three thousand three hundred dollars a share. That's his, and he's done a hundred pages on it. Well, I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, I've given up on on calling bubbles in this space because you know they keep going up. Until the interest rates they stop printing money, I think these mega cap US situations are going to continue. But Elon Musk, richest bloke in the world, uh, Tesla worth 1.2 trillion US at the peak. You know, strike me down with a feather. I just can't believe it. <laughs> can't believe it. <laughs> so. Well, on that note, let's move on to questions. We've got a few questions, uh, and um, it's always I think oh, it's, it's a very enjoyable part of this podcast. Um, we can alternate reading them out. What do you say? Let's do that. Okay. Hugh says, I have a question regarding some shares I've inherited. Last year, I was lucky enough to have inherited a few 100 or so CSL shares that were purchased in the late 90s, I think. I think I want to sell them and buy other shares that give me a better dividend and a greater chance of growth. But my issue is the capital gains tax I'll pay uh, will take a large portion of the value. Should I take the hit and sell the CSL shares, hoping for better growth or hold them? And just be happy I have them. Um, uh, well, 
Uh, we can't give personal advice, Hugh. So this is general advice. If I could precede the answer this way, that way, uh, I reckon uh, somebody like you, who somebody who inherits 100 CSL shares, should think of themselves as holding a portfolio, a share portfolio, of roughly thirty thousand dollars, and the uh, share portfolio should be diversified. CSL is a fantastic company. It's a great investment. Obviously, it's done wonderfully since the late 90s. Uh, you should not sell all of them. Correct. Uh, however, you might want to spread your uh, increase your diversity a little and buy some other shares um, so that you've got a proper sort of diversified portfolio. And my view with capital gains tax, I don't know if you agree, Stephen, is just pay it. You've made the capital gain. Um, just because you're going to have to sell sometime, otherwise you're going to pass them on to your children, and you'll never get the benefit of them. And that's yeah. fine, but, but but manage it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't sell the lot. I would. I would dribble them out. Manage your capital gains tax liability each year, but it shouldn't be your largest portfolio holding. So you know, if you've got thirty thousand of these, and your next largest holding is ten thousand, then over three or four years, manage that down. So it's not your largest holding, but it's a great company, and many people have regretted selling CSL since the float at $2, whatever it was, back in 1993. And that's excluding the one for three um, split. So it's actually effectively close to a $1,000 stock from a $2 something float. So yeah. uh, many people have regretted selling Hugh. Maybe don't be one of them. Our next question, Alan, is from Liam. Is Fortescue shooting itself in the foot by running... Fortescue Future Industries as a wholly owned subsidiary rather than a spin-off. What do you reckon, Alan? I mean, I think uh, I think it's uh, I think it's a bit of a flight of fancy, to be honest. All this sort of uh, green hydrogen evangelism from Twiggy, unlike the Seek sort of venture fund. I think, frankly, that if he did try and spin it off it would struggle. So hence that's why he's keeping it 100% in-house because he's got his own enormous iron ore cash flows to set this thing sailing and uh, try and actually prove that it's more than just uh, Twiggy having a, a flight of fancy. But, you know, I've been wrong before questioning Twiggy. So um, I, I definitely don't think it's a flight of fancy. I think there will be a hydrogen industry. Um, but the thing is that FFI is going to have to invest billions, tens of billions of dollars in the factory mm. to make it, which I think is going to be in Gladstone. Um, so if, while, it's, while it's raising that money, it needs to be part of Fortescue. Fortescue's got to be the bank mm. um, or, the, you know, the, the sort of guarantor of it. Uh, but, but they've got to raise other money and I think eventually he will spin it off for sure. Well, I mean, Twiggy owns 36% of Fortescue, uh, which is a $45 billion company. I, I, this is very much his thing. I would much rather if he sold 6 or 10% of his Fortescue shares and did this as a startup, uh, because I think people are, are, are puzzled by it and it really doesn't have a great deal to do with iron ore. So I think I'm a bit of a believer of stick to your knitting and... Um, you know, if you want to, if you if you're a billionaire and you've got this personal thing, well, do it with your own money and don't bring minority shareholders into something because we all bought into a, a pure play iron ore company, um, and some of us are a bit nervous about spending billions in other states in a, a sort of an unrelated um, frolic. I think that's a fair say. point. Fair point. 
And he no. says, and Liam finishes off, what do you think about the wisdom and all prospects of FMG spinning it off? I think they are very high at some point. Yeah, I think Twiggy will be under pressure to to spin it off because there'll be more and more people saying, what, what's going on? What is this? So, And I think that is the logical play, but it obviously needs a big big seeding of capital to, to take off. Uh, Julian says, I'm interested in copper given, what is, given that it is expected to be the key in the expansion of electrification. Would you have a view on how best to get exposure to it with a narrow focus? I know I could go with BHP, but it becomes diluted with other business segments. Well, there are a few copper companies. Yeah, well, look, I think you could follow the Australian super model. They've uh, cornerstoned the recent Sandfire Resources acquisition of a Spanish copper play called Matza, which they're spending $2.5 billion buying. And that's because the the equities team at Australian Super share your view, Julian, that that copper's got a, a cyclical boom ahead of it with electrification, and they've identified Sandfire as a, a cash generative local player that can go global, and and they're writing big checks to allow that to happen. So that would be the one I would point to. Um, and of course, you got you got the prominent Hill Oz Minerals Copper Gold. But for pure play copper, uh, I'd be saying Sandfire. But with BHP is a good good way in as well. They are one of the world's biggest producers. Your turn. All right. Simon. Now this one, this one question is especially for you, I reckon. All right. Simon says, "Hi, Alan. I'm an investor in a stock, Vulcan Minerals, that was attacked by a short seller, JCap, last week. I don't understand why ASIC doesn't hold short sellers to account when they don't abide by regulations." How can they get away with flagrant violations? Now, I'm going to give a general defence of short sellers because there's an awful lot of spruikers out there and companies talking themselves up and and conflicted analysts and brokers trying to get a share placement. There's an industry on the upside all the time, so it's actually nice to have a few people putting a contrary view. It keeps Such as yourself. companies such honest. As, such such as, as journalists. Yourself. I mean, short sellers are a bit like journalists. We can be a bit cynical, often looking for the gotcha. Uh, us journalists don't make money out of it unless we, the headline generates a lot of good stories. But I like the way short sellers keep companies honest. They tend to be more right than wrong because they are putting their money where their mouth is, except for everyone who's tried shorting Tesla. But I do agree with you that it's a bit of a cowboy industry where you can lob it from offshore without any ASIC regulatory. You don't have to fact check it with the company. But the companies are big enough. Vulcan is a $1.3 billion company. It is big enough to put out an ASX announcement, say this is all crap, point out JCAP's conflicts of interest and ring up half a dozen institutional investors to stabilise the share price. And that's what they've done. And I think they're fine. And it's an interesting contest and we can talk about it in places like this. There you are. Hope you're uh, satisfied with that, Simon. That's an excellent answer, as I expected. Connor says, imagine finding out that your super has been sitting entirely in cash for the past six years. Shame on me. I now understand that for a young person, a set-and-forget, high-growth high allocation is the way forward. Am I foolish to still keep it in cash because the market looks toppy? Oh, yes, you are, Connor. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's been a bad idea the last six years, and... Um, of course, there'll be a time when the market goes down and cash is going to be the place to be. I think but the time is the, the, you it's can't the time really... to do the opposite now, isn't it? I, I mean, I've, I did the same with my News Corp Super. I forgot about it for 15 years and discovered it was with AMP uh, in cash. 
So um, I left twenty or thirty thousand on the table if I look take a long term view on that. So Connor, you, you know, even so called informed commentators can make your elementary mistake of not diligently chasing down every super holding they've accumulated. But I wouldn't be switching to fully growth now. I think we're in a bubble and it's overpriced. Uh, if anything, if I was in a growth fund now, I'd be thinking about going cash the other way if you think that it's overpriced. But you can't stay full cash forever, so I'd maybe go into balanced and take it from there. I would just say, not necessarily disagreeing with that, but just say, look, um, timing the market's really impossible. I mean, you know, you can't. In particular, um, uh, expensive markets keep going. They tend to last far longer than you expect. Um, so, uh, and the the world economy is in a absolutely booming growth phase at the moment. Um, and there may, at some point, be an attempt by central banks to control things, putting interest rates up. Uh, but that's a little way off, I reckon. I agree, but I've seen a few crashes before, as you have, Alan. I mean, I was reflecting before about the, the, the flood of floats we're seeing at the moment. Sight minder this week, you know. It was, it's now valued at $1.9 billion. It's never made a profit. Some fund manager called GQG Partners has just floated, and it's worth $6 billion. Just reminds me of the lead-up to the tech wreck when Ostar, Hutchison, UECOM got away floats at 500 million that went went down crashing to near zero, or leading into the GFC when we had Rams and various Babcock vehicles and Zinefex, which all floated with great excitement and then you know went crashing down to, to little or not very much at all. So um, I see a bubble. We've seen crashes before, um, albeit we haven't seen money printing to prop up markets like we've seen before. Um, so I wouldn't be hopping into hot new floats in this environment, but yeah, get out of 100% cash holding at 0.1% from the Reserve Bank from the last 12 months. You're going nowhere with that except for preserving your capital. That's it. Well, Stephen, it's been great having you in the Money Cafe. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Lovely, Alan. I've got to ask you, actually, um, we're sitting here in Josh's seat of, uh, of Kuyong, and I know that all these independent people are looking for a big-name candidate. What do you reckon? I reckon you could beat Josh if you were the independent candidate in Kuyong. Are you up for a late Darren Hinch-style career change? I could, I could beat him, too. I, I agree. I think I could beat him. Um, <laughs> however, I'm about to turn 70, Stephen. <laughs> and you've got lots of commitments. Oh, well, you know... I don't. I mean, one of the. I think probably the absolute last thing I would want to do is to become a politician. I just cannot imagine anything worse. I mean, but you don't know. You've never done it. Well, I'm a PPPPP. I'm a poorly paid part-time pissant politician in the suburbs as a councillor, and it's good fun. Well, okay, but I reckon the only thing worse than campaigning to get into parliament would be getting into parliament. Imagine that really matters. As we've seen with the fiasco of electric vehicles policy this week, it really matters who is in Parliament. Good people are not running. And as we've seen with all these corruption hearings, both parties have real governance problems and talent management problems and the wrong sort of people are in charge. So I guess it's a frustration that a lot of people are feeling about who's in Parliament and people looking elsewhere. So there's a big push on for the independents. I think you'll see a record number elected next year. Well, maybe you should stand. Come on. Oh, you're I've done a, you're a, I'm a serial candidate. Yeah, I'm a it. serial candidate, though, with no credibility because I've run for 
54 public company boards and I've had $400 billion worth of stock voted against me and I've lost every political election you can think of except for in the suburbs. So I've got no credibility, but you would have significant credibility if you ran. So anyway, sleep on that one and... Uh, and Josh will start inviting me out for lunch if he gets a whiff of, uh, you know, someone's approached Alan. <laughs> Josh launched my book. I was there. You were there. He was working a constituent, keeping a sweet. He was great. So, it, was a, it was a very good speech. Yes, yes. No, he, 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 uh, and he takes your calls, I'm guessing, as well. So uh, no, you've got a good relationship with Josh. You wouldn't want to upset him by trying to sack him. That's right. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks everyone for listening and um, uh, thanks to Stephen Main for joining me in the Money Cafe. And uh, if you've got any questions, I don't know who we'll have next week, but I'm sure it'll be great again. <laughs> and uh, send in your questions to the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief at Eureka Report, and he is Stephen Main. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>